Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The word of Adonai came to me. Go and shout in the ears of Yushalayim that this is what Adonai says. I remember your devotion when you were young, how as a bride you loved me, how you followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was set aside for Adonai, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devour him will incur guilt. Evil will befall them, says Adonai. Hear the word of Adonai, house of Yaakov, and all families of the house of Israel. Here is what Adonai says. What did your ancestors find wrong with me? To make them go so far away from me. To make them go after nothings. And to become themselves nothings. They didn't ask, where is Adonai? Who brought us out of Egypt? Who led us in the desert? Through a land of wastes and ravines. Through a land of drought and death-dark shadows. Through a land where no one travels and no one ever lived. I brought you into a fertile land to enjoy its fruits and all its good things. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage loathsome. The Kohanim didn't ask, where is Adonai? Those who deal with the Torah did not know me. The people's shepherds rebelled, rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things of no value. So again, I state my case against you, says Adonai, and I state it against your grandchildren. Cross to the coast of Kiom and look. Send to Kadar and observe closely. See if anything like this has happened before. Has a nation ever exchanged its gods and find their gods are no gods at all? Yet my people have exchanged their glory for something without value. Be aghast at this, you heavens. Shudder in absolute horror, says Adonai. For my people committed two evils. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug themselves citterns, torn broken citterns that hold no water. Thank you, Paula, for that fervent reading. I, I know that uh, the prophets for a lot of folks are um, no trespassing zone because uh, the prophets get intense. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the language is passionate. The emotions are raw sometimes. And uh, what is being expressed is not always polite or PC. Um, but over the years, I have found reading and studying the prophets to be um, pay dirt. Do you know what I mean by pay dirt? That when you dig, you dig, you dig, you find gold. Okay? Uh, and the prophets are pay dirt in a number of, of ways. Obviously, first of all, because it is the word of God. And it is very graphic, very vivid. And it presents to us an image of God that we don't find elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, sometimes the Lord seems to be almost downright human, which is kind of funny uh, until you realize where did our emotions and thoughts come from? So if the Lord looks like us, rather it's because we look like Him. 
And um, so I, I trust that as we go through um, the next few Shabbatot and look at prophetic passages, uh, as we prepare for the Moadim, the special feast, biblical feast. By the way, they're not Jewish feasts. I hope you, everybody realizes that. Um, they're festivals that God gave. And, um, and so I, I just want to challenge you um, to take a few moments as you go through the week and as you read the Word of God to let the Lord speak to you through these passages. So I want to pause for a minute and uh, ask that the Lord would speak to us. Father God, we thank you for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We bless your name, Lord God, and thank you that you find all kinds of ways to speak to us. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that you are persistent in communicating with us especially, Lord, during those times when we seem to be clueless. So, Lord, we simply pray that you would speak to us today, that each of us, Lord God, would hear your word in our language, and that we would gladly receive your word, Lord, and uh, that your word would minister life to us, Lord, that we would embrace it, and grow into maturity in you. And that's what we ask for in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. Way back in the uh, dim and distant past, when I was in my 20s, I went to a uh, Messianic Jewish Alliance conference in Los Angeles and um, one of the speakers was, he may, he may be well known to you, uh, Richard Vornbrand, who founded uh, Martyrs for Christ. What a lot of people don't know is that Richard Vornbrand, uh, of course a Romanian Jew, he came to faith through a simple Gentile believer, um, a carpenter at a resort where he and his wife uh, came to know the Lord. And this is something you hear from the pulpit and you hear from different venues at Yeshua Tzion. I hope that you, if you're, particularly if you're not Jewish, that you hear it and accept it as a living reality and that the vast majority of us who are Jewish followers of Yeshua the Messiah have come to know him through non-Jewish believers. It's a fact of life. And uh, Richard Vornbrand and his wife uh, came to know the Lord. He, was, he became a Lutheran pastor. By the way, in those days, there was no such thing as Messianic Judaism. And um, he suffered a great deal under the Nazis then he was also um, incarcerated and tortured by the communists for 14 years. And at this conference, he shared how that part of the torture involved him being in isolation for six months. And part of the process that happened over a period of time, because um, he lacked any sort of uh, stimulation... You know, we take that for granted because we get up in the morning and, and somebody talks to us through the day. I hope somebody talks to you through the day. And, uh, and so that's part of our stimulation or else we see things and they register and so on. But if you're in isolation, you have none of that. And over a period of time, um, this brilliant man, this man of God, began to forget everything he knew about the Lord and about Scripture. And he came to a point where he could not even remember the name of Yeshua. 
And what he said at this conference was that at, at that point, the presence of God came flooding into his cell in such a way that he had never experienced God. And then at that point, he knew the reality of God, and he referred to it by the Hebrew name davar. Uh, davar means a lot more than just word. Um, and by the way, if you have a King James, th there are somewhere about 30 different English words for davar. We'll get into that in just a moment. But he said that at that point, he experienced the presence and reality of God as, as something substantive in a way that he had never done before. And so, you know, we're used to thinking about words and about communication as uh, nothing earth-shaking. You know, we, uh, I'll speak for myself, you know, sometimes we open our mouth and blab and all kinds of things come out. Uh, sometimes they're highly edifying and profound, and other times they're downright silly, right? I don't think any one of us gets up, and from the time we get up until the time we go to bed, everything comes out of our mouth is unbelievably profound and, uh, and full of glory, right? So we don't think much about the process of communication, um, by the way, here you have three Hebrew words for, in, in Jeremiah 2, three Hebrew words for communication, um, which is kind of a Semitic way of, of um, emphasizing things. Um, the point simply is that in the prophets, and actually throughout Scripture, we see a great deal of emphasis, emphasis put on the potential of what we say, both for good and for evil. And let me read to you a couple of statements that talk about the power of the tongue. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it eat its fruit. It's Proverbs 18.21. When words are many, sin is not absent. But he who holds his tongue is wise. Well, we're trying. It's uh, 10, 19, then Proverbs uh, 25, 11. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in the setting of silver. And then, of course, we find uh, very much similar kind of thinking in the book of James. Um, James chapter 3, are, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Uh, again, we don't really understand and appreciate the power of our speech. And yet it is very powerful. You know, think of times in your life when you felt especially sliced and diced verbally, and it didn't take much. On the other hand, think about times when someone came along and affirmed you with just very few words and um, how that ministered life to you. You know, I remember when I was a student at Denver Seminary, and uh, I was new, I didn't know what I was doing, and um, I brought an assignment late, and professor uh, was not oozing chesed, um, and so I uh, left his office and sat uh, on the stone bench, and uh, I don't have a poker face, so my face registered um, the fact that I was downcast. And one of the other professors came along and just put his arm around me and said, uh, things will be okay. And, you know, it took, what, 10 seconds. And uh, it made a profound impact on me from that point on. So the tongue is powerful. And how much more so is the word of God? 
You know, sometimes we read scripture and for one reason or another, it's just words on a page, especially if we are tired and cranky and even more, if we don't bother to ask the writer of the book to explain what's in it. Do you ever do that? You ever pause before you open scripture and say, Lord, I'm clueless. Would you please give me a clue? Please speak to me. And he does, and he will. And as we learn to engage, not just with the book, but as we learn to engage with the author, then the word of God becomes life. It, 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 it brings about change and transformation. Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So the, the word of God is creative. Uh, the word of God is redemptive. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. The message is heard through the word of Messiah. At some point in your life, if you are a follower of Yeshua, um, the fact that you are in relationship with God came about because someone talked to you and somehow communicated the word of God to you, and you received it. The Word of God is something that continues to be an active agent in our life. Redemptive agent. The writer of Hebrew, Hebrews puts it this way, Therefore let us make every effort to enter Messiah's rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and effectively powerful and sharper than two-edged sword. Judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So if you're not interested in God shining his flashlight into all kinds of corners in your life, you know, where the roly-polies and the cockroaches are, don't bother opening the book and reading it. Because a major function of the Word of God is to probe and shine light and expose things that are not of God. And if, if for some reason, as happens to all of us, we get grumpy and we're not interested in God telling us the way things are, then don't bother reading the book. We'll talk also more about that um, in just a bit. So somehow, somehow, God speaks his word to us. And it's a mystery, folks. It is a mystery. Um, and I hope that as you come each Shabbat, before you come each Shabbat, that you come with an attitude that says, Lord, I really need to hear from you. Amen. And furthermore, I know as goofy as I am, you're able to speak to me because you wired me. You know what makes me tick and you can somehow communicate to me. And so the Lord God is able to do that through every part of the service. You know, and it's amazing that sometimes just something that is said by somebody, not necessarily yours truly, but something that is said by somebody is somehow inspired by God and it kind of hits our hearts and we are receptive and we somehow hear it. So let me encourage you not to rob yourself by saying, oh, the only time I'm going to hear something from God is during the message. Prepare your heart. Come early that as we worship the Lord and as we um, celebrate His Word, the Torah, and as we receive and, and read the word together, discuss it, that somehow in the process, God will communicate to you. Why? Not because you are unbelievably, spiritually astute, but simply because God who made you knows how to get through to you. Again, it's not about the human medium, folks. 
And this is something we emphasize over and over and over again. Don't get obsessed with the, with the pots of clay. Uh, Paul puts it this way. We, think, we thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it, it actually is the word of God. Again, mystery. As we come, as we are receptive, somehow God makes it happen. By the way, in the prophets, especially in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, you have this expression that's translated in English a little differently. Uh, The word of the Lord came to me. That phrase appears 88 times in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What it literally means is the word of God was there. Behaya, just somehow managed to get through to me. And of course, the prophets then went on to, to communicate. Again, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. It's not just a physical act of noise, sound waves hitting your, your eardrum and somehow getting processed by the, the brain mechanism, but somehow... Because God is here. I hope you, you can, can say amen to that. God is here. Amen. Because God is here, he certainly is capable of communicating. And it's a heart-to-heart conversation. The heart of God to your heart. And you find in the prophets over and over again that this is something that is very personal. So, for example, here in verse 2, chapter 2, the Lord says to Jeremiah, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. What it literally says is go and talk into the ears of Jerusalem. Then in verse 4, same kind of idea, a little differently expressed, is hear the word of the Lord or house of Jacob. The Hebrew word there which you may or may not know is Shema, which is part of our liturgy each Shabbat, Shema Israel. doesn't mean merely hear and say, well, I'm not sure I really am interested in doing anything about it. It's not about selective hearing. Shema always conveys the sense of hearing with intent to follow. Not to me, to God, folks. And if God is speaking, the only sensible response is to say, Lord, I'm willing. I may not understand, but I'm willing. And part of the message we find here is that Jeremiah is conveying the heart of God to a bunch of people who are absolutely clueless and indifferent and hardened verse 2 again go and proclaim the hearing of Jerusalem I remember the devotion of your youth how as a bride you loved you loved me and followed me through the desert through a land not sown now if you're like me you, pr- you probably want to stand up and say wait a minute uh, everything I've seen in the Torah about Israel and the desert experience was anything but the glory days. Um, you see how Israel again and again and again expressed not just kvetching, complaining, but murmuring. Do you know that there's a difference between complaining and murmuring? At least from my perspective, and you may disagree violently, um, God doesn't have a problem with our complaining and saying, God, I'm having a hard time. I mean, the Psalms are full of it, right? Um, Even Yeshua said, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? So complaining is okay. Where it crosses the line from complaining to murmuring is when we choose to believe lies about God and who he is in his nature and character. And that we find a lot of 
in, in, the, uh, in the Torah. In a classic example, when Israel was having a hard time, their response was essentially this. God, you had nothing better to do than to find devious ways to make our life miserable. And furthermore, you brought us here in order to kill us. You couldn't kill us as well in Egypt, so you brought us here to kill us. You hate us. That is murmuring, folks, because it implies awful things about the nature and character of God and His love for us. And so you find that, you find that, and yet you see Jeremiah speaking for God, describing the desert years as glory years. And you say, what's up with that? In fact, the expression is very, very tender. Uh, loyal love of a bride for her husband. Um, a couple of words for love here, chesed and ahava, both the committed love and the affectionate love. So you say, okay, what's up with that? Well, think about, um, go back to Jeremiah's day which was several hundred years after the desert years. And compare where Israel was in the desert, where Israel was in Jeremiah's day. So first of all, in the desert, Israel had no choice but to follow God. It's like we either listen to God and follow Him, or we're dead meat. Okay, can you relate to that? Um... And it was very close and very intimate because when, when the pillar rises up, you know it's time to pack up and move. And it was like that for 40 years. And the expression that you find in the Torah is very touching. Uh, Numbers 10.33, And they set out from the mountain of the Lord. They traveled for three days. The ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them during the three days to find them a place to rest. That's very peculiar, isn't it? You have the same idea in Deuteronomy 133. What it's implying, again, human language, and God goes before them to search out a place where the nation of Israel can come. Now, reality is, does God really need to go and search anything out? He knows everything. But it is designed to convey to the people of Israel that God was actively and intimately involved in seeing to it that they had a good place. So that was the desert years. Despite the murmuring and, and the rebellion, that was a great, it, it was a close relationship between God and Israel. Now what happened in Jeremiah's day is that the relationship between God and Israel was extremely rough, to say the least. Um, during the reign of the king Josiah, they, uh, Josiah was a good king, and they, he wanted to restore the temple, and they found this, this scroll, and nobody had an idea what the scroll was. And the king's secretary opened the scroll and started to read from it. And Josiah pulls out his hair and says, this is the Torah. What does it tell you about the spiritual condition of the land? It was not only gathering dust, but people had no clue where it was and what, was it, what it was about. In the temple, there were altars to the false gods, to the starry host. There, were, there was the totem pole for Asherah and all kinds of other abominable things in the temple, in God's temple. Now, Josiah did some serious house cleaning, but as soon as he was, as soon as he died, everybody, it's sort of like the pig goes back to its, to its mess. And that's what happened to the people of Israel. So you can understand from God's perspective from Jeremiah, Jeremiah's perspective, the desert year were glory years. 
And you think about how it applies to our particular situations, our individual life. And if you have walked with God for a period of time, you know that the desert experiences that we go through, in other words, the difficult and painful times that we go through can either bring us the very best in us or bring out the very worst in us. Those situations, the privation and stress can expose what's down deep, what is our default mode, what we tend to do when nobody's looking. But they can also bring us to a point of desperation where we know that unless God intervenes, unless God comes into the situation, unless God stretches his hand and works, we're dead. And so you learn to come to God in desperation during the desert years, during the desert periods, and you realize as you do that that you initially come because you need the things and over a period of time, you get the fact that, you, that the thing, the devar, is God himself. And you've been able to go beyond just God, help me out here. I need this, this, and this. To where you say, Lord, this is no fun. But I'm sure glad to get to know you better. That's what happened during the desert years. And I, I would encourage you that if you're going through tough times to at least be open to the possibility that God wants to use those difficult times to strengthen you. Because that's what Scripture says, 1 Peter 5, that as we suffer and, and as we go through these difficult experiences, God is able to strengthen us and establish us as we go through those difficult circumstances. Assuming that we're willing and we're receptive to what he wants to do. You know, we, we can always do what the people of Israel did in the desert. And say, this is no good. God, you brought me here to kill me. You really don't love me. I'm on my own, blah, 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 and more blah. God can do some of his finest work in us as we go through the desert experiences. Then Jeremiah goes on to talk about Israel. And uh, scholars explain that chapter 2 and 3 are part of what can be described as a courtroom drama where you have um, evidence being brought as part of divorce proceedings. Now, I don't know if you've been in court uh, in divorce proceedings. They're ugly. You talk about mudslinging from every possible angle. That's what happens. So let me encourage you not to look at this in that, in that same light. Yes, God, um, in a sense, is, is hauling Israel into court. But we're talking about apples and giraffes here, not apples and oranges. Because, unlike the rest of us, God is faithful. God is faithful. In situations where there's tension and conflict between people, what, else are, what is our inclination? Our inclination is to say, this is too hard, I can't stand this person, I'm out of here. And in 23 years of ministry, I've seen this over and over and over and over again. That, folks, is not God's way. Why? Because he's faithful. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. Second uh, Timothy 2.13. And so Israel gave God every single reason in a book to bail out, and he didn't. Why? Because he's faithful. You and I would have bailed out a long time ago. And yes, it looks like courtroom procedure, 
But I hope that we are able to see these two chapters within the context, the larger context of Jeremiah's preaching and teaching. And what you'll find, folks, in, in prophet after prophet, is you'll have God's judgment being proclaimed on, on a rotten bunch of people. And at the same time, somewhere in the book, you will find the promise of restoration. Because God is committed to the people, He is able to bring about restoration. And the judgment and the anger that's expressed is not because God is having a bad hair day, but because He is hurt. It's an expression of His pain that people inflict on Him. So because of that, as we read these verses, we need to understand that even though it looks like God is hauling Israel into court, he is by no means finished with the nation of Israel. So verse 3, the way it's typically translated is as follows. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured in the past were held guilty and disaster overtook them. I think we can make a strong case that this should be translated not as something that happened in the past. Israel was was holy to God, but Israel is holy to God. The first fruits of his harvest. In fact, in Zechariah 14, we find that at the end, when everything is put together and you have God's kingdom here on the earth, What is predicted is that everything will be holy unto the Lord, Kodesh la Adonai, the same kind of, of expression that is mentioned here. So my point simply is that I don't see the need to, to say that Israel was holy, set apart for God, and is no longer that that's no longer the case. What you find here over and over is somehow, despite the fact that Israel gave God all kinds of reasons to be angry that you have terms of endearment that is being expressed here. And that's hugely important for us who are part of the Messianic Jewish community because we have our brothers and sisters in the church who park on the evils of Israel and say because Israel was evil God was finished. Well, by that definition, by that standard, um, what has happened in the church for the last 2,000 years should mean that God has finished with the church. Because if you read church history, it curls the, the hair on the back of your head with the sin and depravity and, and, and apostasy that was in the church. No different than Israel. And so how God deals with Israel should be a confidence builder to everybody who names the name of God. Israel is poster child for God's mercy. And because we know how he has been merciful to Israel, we know he's merciful to us. I I don't know about you. I am grateful. I am eminently grateful. Because I know over a period of my lifetime, if God wanted to nuke me, he could have had good reasons. Again, what we need to realize is that there is anger expressed here, but anger expresses God's hurt. And remember that typically anger always comes from someone being hurt. You know, you ladies are a little bit more in tune with that. You know, we like to put on a facade, uh, gentlemen. So what we see here is, is pretty grim. God is not looking to airbrush Israel's sin. And I, for one, am grateful for that. You know, Scripture is is very real. The Word of God is very real. It deals with the reality, the brokenness of 
of man. And yet how God is able to transcend that and bring about redemption. So yes, it is human-like. Yes, it is very raw. But it expresses the heart of God. You know, the Lord in a sense is screaming in verse verse 6. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt? And especially in verse 8, the priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the Torah did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal. Again, I hope you recognize the emotional tone here that God is speaking with a great deal of pain. Just as he does with you and I when we go off track. And I, for one, am grateful that God doesn't let us go off the cliff, but when we go off track, he finds all kinds of ways to get our attention. And says to us, my child, you are getting ready to go off the cliff. Why don't you come back here? And uh, why don't you come back here? And this is part of the message. You know, the Lord is saying to Israel, why do you insist on being stupid? Why do you insist on acting stupidly? Verse 5, what fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? In other words, did, did I give you and, and your forefathers any reason to move away from me? Was I devious? Was I crooked? Did I not live up to my commitment that you guys should stray from me? And by the way, what you find in Scripture over and over and over again is that God's heart is that we not move away from him, but we come close to him. One of the key Hebrew words for sacrifice or offering, korban, has the sense of that which is brought near. Same kind of an idea as we find in Hebrews 4.16. Come boldly before the throne of grace. That's God's heart, and, and it hurts him when his people choose, instead of pursuing him, they choose to follow the things that are worthless. Hebrew word here for worthless idols is hevel, which we find 30 plus times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's translated as vanity, vanity, says the preacher, everything is, is vain. You know, you read... Ecclesiastes, and you want to jump off a cliff unless you realize that there's a good message there. Idols, the Hebrew word for idol that's used here, hevel, means vapor or breath. And the things that we feed, the things that we follow, determine who we are. Think of it this way, folks. Where you put your time, where you put your energy, where you put your money, where you pour out your devotion determines who you are. Whether it is the Lord or whether it is false gods. Now, here's where, in case you think I'm getting personal, I'm getting, first of all, personal with myself. We don't have Baal and and Ashtoreth and Molech and all these other funky gods. But idol worship is thriving in our society. And how do you recognize it? Well, one idol in our society is individualism. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm the one. I'm in essence King Tut. I determine what is right and wrong. What's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. Blah, blah, more blah. And frankly, folks, individualism is an idol for us as believers. Think about it. What determines our commitment to a body of believers, to a community? One basic fact. 
we, we, if we feel comfortable, then we stay. If we don't feel comfortable, we're gone. Well, what happens is that God sees fit to do some of his finest work in the sheep pen where the sheep get restless and nudge each other and sometimes even bite. And so a major idol for us is me. Me and my needs, my interest, my gifting, and so on and so forth. We don't get the scriptural teaching of the community life. Chesed is covenant, committed, loyal love, folks. It's not just grace. So for all of us, there are different idols. If we were to go around the room and we're not, I'm sure for each one of us, idol worship would, would look a little different. You know, one of the big, biggest for me confession time is task orientation, being able to put things down and check things off as I get them done. That helps with some degree of sanity. And uh, when it doesn't happen, you can imagine what happens to my brain. And part of what God does, folks, with each one of us is he pursues us and he engages to expose the idols in our life. To say to us, you are committed to that. That's where your heart is, not with me. And at some point, you know, the Lord knows the titanium plates that I've got. At some point, I felt like God has been saying to me, why don't you let go of this stuff and maybe somehow, without you fussing and fuming, things will get done. And during the season with, with Passover Seder, with March of Remembrance, temptation is, is to worship Baal. And I've come to a conviction where I say, okay, God, you know everything, you're in charge. And the final section I wanted to, to leave with you is verse uh, 13 here. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, the phrase living water simply means water which flows. It's fresh. It's not stagnant. And being or seeking to be closer to God means that that's what we experience. We experience the living water, the refreshment that comes from being in God's presence. And what we typically end up doing is we try to fix things and have our own cistern with water, and guess what happens? Inevitably, the water leaks. And we get desperate and frustrated and we try harder and the harder we get, the behinder we get. You know what I'm saying? And at some point, God is faithful and he says to us, why don't you relinquish control and release your greasy paws from this situation so that I can do something? And instead of fussing and fuming, and pursuing Baal, you pursue me. And yes, we go through difficult times. Yes, we go through dry times. Yes, we go through all of that. But we can either determine that those times will be times when we stop and listen. Because by the way, desert is a place where there's not a whole lot of noise. You know, you don't have TVs blaring and internet and Facebook flashing at you, you, you're forced to listen. And that's when God can speak to you in the desert. And he somehow can manage to see to it that you're okay. And through the experience, then learn to know more about God.
Folks, I don't know about you. That for me has become my life quest. I want to press after God. And I hope that's your heart desire here today too. Let's pray. And we're going to take some time to conclude with worship. And um, I'd like to encourage you to remember simply that we're in God's presence. And whatever God has been saying to you over this period of uh, our, our service, that you give him the freedom to seal it, to finish the job, to finish the communication process, and most of all, for you to sign off on it and say, God, I'm willing. Father God, we thank you. We thank you, Father God, for your work in our life, for your perseverance with us, Lord, that you don't give up on us. And much more, Lord, that you sustain us, and even strengthen us, Lord, through challenging times. I pray for each one of us, Lord. Wherever we are in this process, we pray, Lord God, that you'll cause us to hear from you and to recognize and acknowledge your voice and embrace what it is you're saying to us and follow. Pray for soft hearts for each of us, Lord. And we ask all of that in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.